0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballot to Talk About. This week we'll be previewing two upcoming national elections, one in New Zealand and the other in Poland. And along the way we'll be asking the big question, will the current Polish government get an unprecedented historic third term? It's Saturday the 23rd of September 2023.
1: President, who seeks not to divide, but unify. Not now, I am a
0: fighter and not
1: a quitter. It's time for a change in this country, my friends. A
0: real change.
1: Let's keep moving. Slava Ukraini!
0: And joining me on the other side of the world, as always, is my co-host, Chen. How is
1: everything going, Chen? It's going very well, thanks. It's finally getting very hot. And happy Pride Weekend from Brisbane as well this weekend. So lots of rainbows and drag queens all around. Oh, lovely, lovely. We love to see it. Anyway, um, I'm sure this week we'll be talking about two countries with very different attitudes towards LGBT rights. Uh, it can be said. And Sam, we rarely talk about this, but can you actually remember a time where there were two significant other national elections taking place in the same day? Because I'm struggling right now. Certainly while we've been doing the podcast,
0: I'm trying to think, I think the pro- probably the closest is I remember September 2021 when there were so many national elections taking place at once, um, not necessarily on the same day, but certainly in the span of the same fortnight. Um, I'm talking when it was Germany and Canada and Iceland and Norway that do you remember that period that's that's probably the closest I can think of in our three years of doing this podcast
1: yes same here I mean that that September I think it was three weekends we had three European elections but this week this for in this year three years later it is not in September but the 14th of October isn't it
0: yeah so this week um we will be talking about two national elections that are scheduled. So last week we had the theme of countries that were heading for snap elections following the early collapse of their governments. This week it's all about countries whose parties are seeking third consecutive terms and on the same day. Um, But before we turn to all things Poland churn, we're going to turn literally to the other side of the world to New Zealand where where we know at least one thing which is that the next prime minister will be called Chris
1: isn't it Chan exactly and i really also you're to talk about unprecedented parallels you talk about themes that there's another one because the pri- the new the new new zealand labor party prime minister is chris Hipkins, and he's running against the national party leader chris luxon which on an election to the low, the 120 seat house of representatives where you need 61 seats for majority, assuming no overhangs. It will, the election will be taking place on the 14th of October. And Chris Hipkins, of course, if you remember to an earlier podcast earlier this year, I replaced Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister after she unexpectedly stood down in January 2023. His party currently holds historic majority and held 65 seats in the 2020 election, a record high. But I think we acknowledge that that election in twenty twenty was largely seen as the exception rather than the rule, and one thing is for certain: they are almost certain to lose their majority. There is no doubt about that. The national party is seeking to return to power after after a period of six years, and they are coming from a very, rather low base of thirty three seats in the last election, their second worst result in the in the multi member proportional era. And Christopher Luxon, their new leader, is a former CEO of Air New Zealand and a former executive of Unilever. He ran the Canadian operations there. But the other thing is for certain is that both parties will be needing a coalition partner. The Labour Party almost certainly need the Greens, and the National Party almost certainly need the ACT Party, which just actually stands for the Association of Consumers and Taxpayers. But the question we're asking this today, later on, is will more parties be needed? Will New Zealand first come into the conversation? Or will the Maori party come into the conversation? All questions that we will consider. But Sam, let's first focus our conversation on the two big contenders, the Labour Party and the National Party. And we really need to start talking about the Labour Party, because the Labour Party we always knew were coming out of historic high, having won the first ever majority MNP government, not only in New Zealand, but I think one of the rare occasions in the world where they managed to do so. So where they all go wrong to a point where Chris Hipkins is very much in danger of not becoming Prime Minister after 14th October, what happened?
0: well that's the that's the million dollar question because i think i think you did hit the nail on the head in your intro when you said that 2020 was the exception rather than the rule because really achieving an overall majority in 65 seats in a multi-member proportional system really is quite extraordinary and it was one of the first elections that we covered here in this podcast um, in its entirety and we talked about how unprecedented that that was um and how at the time Jacinda Ardern was phenomenally popular, as was her Labour Party, and that's what drove them to these astounding um, results back in 2020. And let's not forget this election took place right in the middle of the COVID pandemic, when loads of um, national leaders from all over the world were experiencing phenomenally high approval ratings due to that rally around the flag effect. And really, um, for Jacinda Ardern, it was one of the first truly um, fully held national elections since the covid pandemic held anywhere in the world really um and so we got to see in um, electoral data somebody benefiting from that rally around the flag effect um so that that's an important asterisk i think when talking about the collapse of the labour party support since then because really three years ago was exceptional and should be treated as such when we talk about it but nonetheless i think there are a few things to pinpoint where this support could have fallen apart i think primarily the cost of living is a huge factor here because we know that the economy is fundamental in political systems and if the economy is not performing well or is perceived to be performing badly very often the incumbent government um struggles in in elections and just some stats to sort of sum this up and yes every country around the world at the moment to a certain extent is experiencing this but New Zealand currently has um, GDP declining for a second consecutive quarter and the CPI has risen at a rate of 6%, interest rates are currently at 5.5% and back in July 30% of people said that they were struggling to pay bills and rent and those 30% also agreed that they'd refrained from booking a doctor's visit due to the costs involved. So that's the economic situation that we're sitting in and I think that is hugely important in explaining these this decline of labour support. But I think the other key thing is also about the reputation of the party because they've been going through a a torrid time of ministerial resignations, all for very different reasons. But once you start to add these up, it starts to paint a very um, negative picture about party discipline, um, potential corruption or one rule for them and another rule for everybody else. I'm talking, of course, about the three almost back-to-back ministerial resignations due to misconduct that we've seen in New Zealand. The latest being Justice Minister Kiri Allen, who stepped down after being arrested for crashing her government vehicle into a parked car and was arrested on three counts, driving over the limits, refusing to accompany a police officer and careless use of a vehicle. And that's just the latest one. We had Stuart Ash resign as police minister, um, and he was sacked from his other positions after leaking um, government information to some wealthy donors. We had a defection. Um, We had Michael Wood resigning as immigration, transport and workplace relations minister after failing to declare interests and shared ownership in telecoms and Auckland airport. Um, So all of these things I think add up to when you've got the economy in a bad state, You've got several ministerial resignations over scandals. It's then quite straightforward, I think, to understand why the Labour Party is, is falling away from its absolutely exceptional peak
1: three years ago. You're exactly right, Sam. I definitely think you cannot ignore the economic fundamentals have not been very good. And I think what you have to understand as well is that it's framed within a context where Chris Sipkin himself one of his first few speeches when he became prime minister, he declared that the cost of living is at the heart of our government's work program and it is his absolute priority. And yet the indicators are very much going the wrong way. So you you've highlighted this issue in lights, but yet the indicators are going the wrong way. So I think the fundamentals are definitely going the wrong way as well. Um, and the other and you talked about the four ministers who have resigned, Stuart Nash, as you said. Stuart Nash was actually um, there were later the reason why he was sacked, um, it was further revelations that he had potential conflict of interest, including email to donors about confidential cabinet discussions about commercial rent relief really, during the COVID-19 economic package. And he fundamentally disagreed with that, which is against the New Zealand constitution, actually. Is actually written in the New Zealand constitution. Make a fight 3 defected to the Maori Party whilst Chris Hipkin was traveling to London to attend the coronation of King Charles III. So it's left to the acting Prime Minister Carmel Cepoloni, to announce um the fact that Maker Fighter 3 been stripped of a ministerial portfolios. And you're right, Michael Wood was the transport minister, but yet he still had shares in Auckland Airport. That seemed like a big conflict of interest. And you're and it just adds to a government. That collective discipline, and you had to think, Sam, that until Chris Higgins became Prime Minister, I think it just showed the star and the order Jacinda Ardern had, because I don't really think these issues really came up. These all issues were there, but the discipline within we cabinet was such that these issues didn't leak out, certainly to the same extent they did over the last couple of months, did it? No, and I mean, I think Jacinda Ardern's an interesting question here, because
0: I think a lot of um, international observers who are not hugely familiar with domestic New Zealand politics would, one, and we talked about this when we talked about Ardern's resignation, but they'd be, one, thinking, is the absence of Jacinda Ardern a negative um, for the Labour Party because she was perceived as so popular? She won that overwhelming majority three years ago, Um, so people might be... Forgiven for thinking, well, actually, did things start to fall apart when she resigned? But actually,
1: this predates that, doesn't it? I agree. I think this definitely predates it. Um, I think people were tired of Jacinda Ardern, actually, to, certainly towards the end of her premiership as well. Um, and her popularity in amongst New Zealanders was dropping. I think largely she the, the entire period of COVID, and we often saw this with many leaders... Was that the restrictions of the separated families? New Zealand had a very strict lockdown, forging businesses grounded down. In, pop- in fact, they didn't, they
0: didn't really remove their final isolation requirements and mask mandates until last month, August 2023, which, I mean, certainly for a UK audience is like almost incomprehensible um, that there were still those kind of
1: COVID restrictions in place this year. I agree. I should say as well though that um Jacinda Ardern is following a pattern where former prime ministers give their successors space to develop their own mandate and leadership styles. Helen Clark for example despite the fact that Jacinda Ardern worked for Helen Clark did not appear in the 2017 or 2020 campaigns. Um John Key didn't appear at Bill English's campaign in 2017 or Judith Collins, who was a cabinet minister under her um under John Key in 20 in 2020, despite the fact John Key and Helen Clark were both very popular in large parts during their premierships as well. So I think it's also a feature of New Zealand politics as well. But I, th- I I just I think you cannot ignore her her last year or so, her falling domestic popularity. And I think, Sam, would you not agree with me that however much it will galvanise the Labour base, would it probably also galvanise the opposition base as well and remind, uh, remind suddenly the right of the polarisation and the harsh restrictions and that people just genuinely want to forget about right now?
0: Yeah, I think I think that's certainly true because I don't think this the story of this election is exclusively... Labour falling away, because I think the National Party does have a lot um, to to take credit for in rebuilding their brand, because you said at the start that they had had such a torrid result, their second worst result in the MMP era just three years ago, and now... I'd say I, w- I wouldn't just say they're rivaling the Labour Party for power. I'd say, to be honest, they're probably narrow favourites to reclaim power, which in itself is a story and, and can't just simply rely on the collapse of support in the Labour Party. So there is a story to tell from the National
1: side as well. I agree, and I would like to hear, Sam, what you think. Of some of the things are, but one thing I think you, we talked about, and this could be the contrast, really, is that. Chris it declared the cost of living to be his absolute priority and yet all the indicators are that he has not he has failed to solve that problem and if it, it could be argued it's getting worse you contrast that with a national party and do you think as well that National has often built itself as a sound and prudent economic manager in time of economic crisis certainly John Key in when he was leading the national government from 2008 to 2016. The economy and New Zealand's relative perf- well perf- performance during the global financial crisis could certainly a certain nostalgia for the period. Certainly helping, but I wonder, Sam, how much do you think Christopher Lux's background as a CEO, on as an executive, has helped National in this campaign, and contrasted it very well with Labour struggles with the economy. Mm.
0: I think the background has has helped a lot. I read quite an interesting interview that he did where he was posed this exact question which was do you think your previous business experience has any um, impact on how you campaign and I thought his answer was really interesting because he talked about how um when he was working for Unilever, one of the things he used to do before he would go on flights to for corporate meetings and board meetings was he would just go to people's houses who were using um, Unilever's um, products and he would understand, try to understand how they were using the products in their life, but also just generally trying to understand their life and how the business fit into their life. And he said his perspective has been using that experience in the political world to try and understand What are the problems what do you rely on government for and how can i fix them um and by all accounts um certainly in some anecdotal evidence from voters around new zealand that's exactly how they've perceived christopher luxon so if that is how he's using his previous ceo experience it seems to to a certain extent um be working now i think it's important to say that chris hipkins and christopher luxon basically have the same um prime minister approval rating but in the context of a situation where one is prime minister and one has relatively small political experience, I think to be neck and neck in itself um, is, is, is
1: telling. I should also say as well that I do think some of the more populist policies, it could be argued, or why would say, traditional centre-right policies of tax cuts for the middle class and tax credits for childcare, I think particularly in this cost of living age, probably are quite popular as well. And I don't think you can discount that as well. I think as well. The other thing we cannot take away is that yes, on social issues, I think this is an election that is there is that slight interesting contrast. But this election will be about the economy as well. And whilst Chris Hitkins has some Chris Chris Luxon has some policies that he has championed over the last couple of months, I do wonder as well is that when Chris Hitkins came to power, I think he recognised the fact that there were definitely some barnacles that were bogging down Jacinda Ardern's government and had to be and issues that had to be dealt with, and he dealt them, by either scrapping them or delaying them. The list of it was pretty extraordinary, Sam. The list of of legislation he scrapped includes a proposed merger between TVNZ and Radio New Zealand, the biofuel mandate called, requiring petrol and diesel to contain a certain percentage of biofuels from renewable sources lowering the voting age to 16, the speed reduction program, apart from the most dangerous 1% of highways, the clean car update program. He has delayed legislation on the social income insurance, hate speech, three waters reform, which I understand is a reform to centralize the management of water supply, alcohol reforms, container return schemes, public transport, including the Auckland Light Rail, which the government has championed for six years, and a public consultation on a new test to determine the difference between contracts and employees. Is he therefore running on an empty future man? Is that a problem he's facing? Because he's jettisoned so much of his of the last of, of the domestic agenda that the government is seeming a bit light right now, Sam?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly one interpretation of that has been that he's tried to focus the government on trying to combat cost of living issues by jettisoning any kind of domestic policy that doesn't have anything to do with putting the economy in a better stead so I think it's worth saying that there are two um, explanations for what's going on but I do think it has been um, a bit of an issue for Chris Hipkins because if people are trying to judge the Labour Party on its record in government or its commitment to election pledges from three years ago I think it is then difficult when you have such a very different domestic platform being given to them this time than it was three years ago that I think there is, a to a certain extent, it's compounded this idea that the Labour Party is in a very different, it's a very different Labour Party than the one I voted for three years ago, both on domestic policy, economic record, leadership, um, political reputation in terms of scandals and ministerial resignations. I think it does sort of paint a, a, a different picture for them.
1: Well, I think that has also helped, isn't it, that wider polarisation of politics has also fueled the rise of smaller parties to the left and right, both the Green Party to the left of the Labour Party, because Chris Higgins has jettisoned so much of the what could be the more social democratic aspects of Jacinda Ardern's tenure. And the act certainly has come and Christopher Luxon has had to respond by shifting the part the national party largely away from the center ground towards the right and probably the centrist consensus and the two-party system has broken down somewhat sam these, these to the act and green party they will be a big part of the next government isn't it if national or labor wins i mean i mean for sure because normal
0: service is about to resume in new zealand because three years ago we had a majority and it was the first time a majority had ever Happened since New Zealand transitioned to um, the MMP system back in 1996 so we are going to see normal service in New Zealand which is one of the two main political parties has to team up with at least one other person in some form whether it's formally whether it's informally to govern um, Jacinda Ardern had to do that prior to 2020 um, and it's looking likely that either Chris Hipkins or Christopher Luxon will have to do that after this election. Um, So I think both the Green Party and the ACT will be expecting to play a large role because at the moment in the last opinion poll, just as an example, both of them were polling 12%, which is actually quite a respectable result in this kind of electoral system. So they're going to have a fair few seats um, and they're going to have a fair bit of clout, I think, in this um,
1: negotiation period. And crucially as well, what they probably will do will push the Labour Party if they have the numbers with the Greens to the left. And the National Party will be pushed to the right because some of the things that probably has fueled some acts gains probably amongst National Party supporters is opposing the ban on the semi-automatic weapons after that was introduced in the Christchurch after the aftermath of the Christchurch terror attack. They want a top tax rate of 28%, which is down from the 39% currently. Culture wars that referendum on they want a referendum of the co governance between government and the Maori people, for example. That's for act and for the Greens, for example. They want fast action on climate change, drug law reform, including decriminalizing drugs, and they want a wealth tax, which is the Labour Party said they do not want. So, we're going to see a much bigger polarization this next period, isn't it? A much a government much more on the center right and then on and on the center left then let's say a centrist government, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's going to be interesting to see how those negotiations go, because if you do look at that last um, seat prediction that was put out from um, an opinion poll just last week, you saw a situation where national plus the ACT equals 61 seats. Does that sound familiar? That is exactly the number of seats required for a majority, um, which makes for... An interesting negotiation period if those are the numbers we end up with, um, because, yes, the Labour plus the Greens don't have enough, but the National plus the ACT have barely enough, which puts a lot of power um, in the hands of the ACT.
1: Is that your prediction, Sam?
0: I didn't expect to be (laughs) I didn't expect to be called out like that. But I think if I were to have to predict what's the most likely outcome of this election. I think the National ACT arrangement is far better positioned than the Labour Green arrangement to form a government after this election, unless something dramatically changes in the next few weeks.
1: I think I agree with you. I think National and ACT are better placed to form a government. But don't discount the possibility that even in 61 seats, because of how MMP works with such a 5% threshold, that there are overhangs, particularly with the Maori party, who might get a few constituency seats, but because they fall under the 5%, they actually also gain they gain seats in proportion to their vote. So they might get an overhang of one or two seats, which pushes the number of seats you need for majority to 62, or maybe potentially at a very high 63, and therefore you suddenly fall short. So what? So that might give the uh opening to the left or if New Zealand first comes back into the conversation gets over 5%. 5% is on the higher end of thresholds. Maybe they'll get there, maybe not. Some of the polls suggest they are close on the threshold. So I think Sam they are favored, but I don't think negotiations will be easy. Let's put it that way. And particularly mm-hmm. compared to John Key's era where Act only had one seat, then Act are now in a much, much stronger negotiating position. And Act themselves have said that they want to go into government. I think, given the fact given that they are going to go places where the National Party do not want to go, I think negotiations could be a little bit longer for them to form a government of some kind than the top results suggest.
0: Mm, yeah, I think it will certainly be interesting to see. What happens in New Zealand, because, as I said, we've had three years of an extraordinary situation where one party has had a majority um, in the New Zealand Parliament, which hasn't been seen um, since the electoral system was changed in 1996. So it will be normal service resuming, but not necessarily as straightforward
1: as that. Well. New Zealand is always going to be nostalgic for us, Sam, isn't it? Because it was the first election that we covered when we did this podcast three years ago. And it's also the... And therefore, it's the first country to come back with a regularly scheduled election. So I'm sure we'll be keeping an eye upon both of it. But as we said right at the beginning, we at least know one thing. The next Prime Minister will be Chris. The question is, and we'll be solving the next two or three weeks, is whether it'll be a ginger or no hair whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh. hello and welcome back to ballot to talk about Well, we'll be moving on to talk about the other big national election taking place on the 14th of october which will be taking place in poland and we have in poland the law and justice party going for a third term in office which would be the first time that has happened since democratic elections were restored back in 1989 it's we currently have Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki um, who is the Prime Minister but not necessarily the leader of the party because that is Yaroslav Kaczynski who will be both hoping um, that their united right coalition will be back in government after the 14th of October. Their main opponents in this election are the Civic Platform, who are currently led by former Prime Minister and former European Council President Donald Tusk. Donald Tusk and um, Jaroslaw Kowinski are famous um, political enemies in Poland, which has added a certain um, spice to how this election has been conducted. And there are three groups fighting out to be the potential kingmakers in this election, all representing very different parts of the ideological spectrum. You've got the left, You've got the Third Way, which is an alliance between the Polish coalition and Poland 2050 and the far-right Confederation Party. So it all in all makes out for quite an interesting um, electoral period. And also we'll be seeing on the same day, on the 14th of October, which I'm sure we'll talk about, a referendum taking place that has been announced by um, the incumbent Law and Justice Party, which, um, to put it mildly, has interesting questions um on this referendum um, and as seen by many as an attempt to put certain issues to the political fore and as an opportunity for the law and justice party to increase their electoral spending but that is um for a later part of this discussion but jen i wanted to start with the law and justice party they're going for a third term here one do we think that's achievable for them and two why have they been such a dominant force in polish politics because really, their performances in the last um, eight years have been quite um, phenomenal.
1: And I, and I just like to contrast this election compared to 2015, when they came in after eight years of a civic platform, which was in large part led by Donald Tusk's government. That election, it was very clear that the, the civic platform government had run out on steam and was destined for defeat. But this election, Sam, they're still going to be very likely in first place. The question is, is whether their united right coalition government can find the allies that they need to form a majority in the scene, the lower house of the Polish parliament. So I, I think that context is particularly interesting and key when you answer this question of how they have become the most populous, Um, how they become a dominant force in Polish politics. They are right-wing populist national conservative political party. They have a culturally and social conservative agenda. But I think what has helped, therefore, is they've also embraced economic intervention, or they're quite centre-left in terms of economic policy and right-wing on cultural issues. So on the right-wing... So therefore, I think they've been very successful at both attracting older voters who have been attracted to the cultural and social conservatism, but because of their left wing economic agenda, I also wonder if they also very they've also been able to tie on Poland's working class population onto their electoral coalition itself, and they've also had some very popular policies they've implemented over the last eight years, including because of their social conservatism and pro-family agenda, lots of popular transfer payments to families with children as well. So I think that has all helped the fact that they rely on a tradition, a voter base, an older voter base, which we know, Sam, in a non-compulsory vote, uh, voting system, that that is a powerful voting system. Their economic interventionism means that the working class is a big part of the electoral coalition, and some popular policies they implemented over the last eight years, including um spend expenditure and transfers to families, which I think have really helped. And I think as well, what cannot be um and I then this is the reason why I like to talk about Poland, Sam, is because if you look at Polish electoral maps and how they and how the civic platform and how the law and justice party There is a clear dividing line in this country, isn't it, Sam, in terms of the electoral coalitions in this country, which is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Uh, You're you're absolutely right. I mean, you see swathes of orange in the,
0: like, northwest part of the country, and then as you go down to the southeast, completely blue um, for the Law and Justice Party. So you do see the more western you are in the country, the far more likely you are
1: to vote civic platform than the eastern. So there is a huge um, cultural divide here. And I should say as well that particularly in, in some elections, it actually corresponds very nicely to what is often referred to as Poland A versus Poland B. And law and justice draws most of its support from Poland B, which used to be the Russian and Austrian partitions of what Poland used to be. Whereas Poland, where the civic platform drew most of its support from Poland A, which used to be the German part, and it's almost nicely um, divided by, the, uh, by a river that runs through the country as well. So I think that's this phenomenal um, electoral geography politics, really. We saw that in Nigeria as well, between the Christian South and the Muslim North. We have a certain replication of it here, depending on which former colonial powers used to occupy Poland. I think it's absolutely fascinating.
0: No, I, I think you're absolutely right, and it's and it's also one of the reasons why I think this election has become quite globally fascinating. I mean, there are quite a number of reasons why. But Chen, do you want to talk a little bit about about that? Why are all eyes on Poland in this election? Why are why is it such a significant election um, for the global community
1: in terms of its um, perception and the intention on it? Well, let me just first of all talk about Poland and its relationship with the European Union, because you have a Quite a cleavage, would you not agree, Sam? Between if law and justice wins or a civic platforming wins, in terms of the relationship with the European Union, Poland, I would say, has been one of the key agitators. In fact, in two thousand nine, uh, when David Cameron founded the European Conservatives and Reformers, the main ally that he that went with him to join up and form the ECR was the Law and Justice Party in Poland. I think it's also because it's economically it's been one of the biggest countries in Eastern Europe, it has a lot of clout and a lot of weight in Eastern Europe itself. And I think that's very important as well. So definitely, I think on the European Union front, they will be seeing whether a more confrontational approach, i.e. the status quo, will maintain with law and justice wins the Or, I mean, Donald tusk the The leader of Civic platform is a former president of the European Council. Will we expect much more cordial relationships if he becomes there? So I think the European Union is heavily invested in it. And Sam, would you not think as well that you know, this Poland will be certainly the cat in the feather or whether Eastern Europe, which kind of had a over the pandemic, had a somewhat moving back towards the European Union or certainly last year as the mm-hmm. Ukrainian crisis, mm-hmm. You know sending the eu became a lot closer together this election could really signify that eastern europe is once becoming the problem region of european relations we talked about slovakia last 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 week in last week's podcast mm. this could be another one isn't it
0: yeah i mean it's, it's sort of a similar story to slovakia in many ways in the current context with the exception being that slovakia currently is in a very different place to where it could be, whereas Poland is talking about, is it going to continue the place it's currently in, certainly in terms of its attitudes towards Ukraine? I mean, Poland has been um, a pretty staunch ally of Zelensky and the um, fight against Russia and the Russian invasion until very recently when they seem to have fallen out over um, Ukrainian grain exports. In fact, Zelensky and Ukraine have taken the... um, are trying to put up legal proceedings against the Polish government for its boycott of Ukrainian grain, and that's led to Poland um, not sending any more military supplies to, uh, well, any weaponry to Ukraine until this crisis is resolved. But I think your European point is, is the most significant here because the European Union is paying incredibly close attention to this election. Yes, Poland itself has been difficult, but really the difficulty has been the alliance formed between Poland and Hungary, because at the moment, both of those are causing trouble to um, the European Union and the European Union can't really take any action against either of them as long as both of them are prepared to block it, because Article seven of in the European Union basically says that you can limit the voting rights of any participating member if they're breaching any articles of the European Union or any of its core um, beliefs about how it wants to espouse its democracies. The crucial thing about Article 7 is you can't trigger it without unanimity, but as long as Poland and Hungary a- agree to block action against either of those countries, there's going to be no action against either of them. So the European Union is pinning quite a lot of hopes on this election because it hopes that if Donald Tusk returns to power, that block is removed and they can take action against Viktor Orban, which they've been wanting to do for nearly a decade. So there is a lot riding on this election for the European Union. And I think that's why there's a lot of attention being paid to it, because it could change how the European Union deals with its most difficult member which is currently Hungary. But as long as the Law and Justice Party
1: are in power, that's not going to happen. In fact, we should not agree with this, Sam, that the next two weeks, next three weeks, could be either a very good week for the European Union with a progressive Slovakia and civic platform getting to power in Slovakia and Poland, or it could be the worst nightmare for them if Robert Fico and Law and Justice return to power, isn't it? Oh, oh for, for sure,
0: for sure. And um, I think the Ukrainian context just exaggerates the importance of this because you're sort of fighting a, a battle on two fronts because you've got the European Union, the more political union side of things that has been going on for a number of years. But now you've also got how do these countries approach Ukraine versus Russia in this conflict going on well right on poland's doorstep i mean quite early in this uh, conflict there was concerns that had Kiev fallen quite quickly that poland would be at, at vulnerable to some kind of um, military or diplomatic assault from russia so this really is about as close as you get to um to the the conflict that's raging in ukraine and the political
1: ramifications of this election could be quite seismic I agree. I, I totally agree The political consequences could be quite seismic as well. I want to talk about the issue of Ukraine, though, because I think I can't help but think that a lot of domestic politics and the election is being wound up in suddenly the prime minister's rhetoric towards Ukraine and its actions on Ukrainian grain. Because um, certainly the president, President Duda, who is not up for re-election, has taken a very different line compared to the prime minister, despite the fact they're all from the same party. Um, That's the first thing. And I think the second thing to note as well is that uh, PIS, or law and justice, draws a lot of support from not only voters without a university degree, but crucially, rural and small town voters, i.e. voters with a lot of farmers. So I think it's very much appealing to the base strategy of maintaining this boycott for electoral purposes. I wonder once the election is over, whether their rhetoric will change
0: yeah and i think there's a there's a number of things that it could change on because i think one key um feature of this election i think has been the law and justice party perceiving themselves as being quite vulnerable in this election and clamping down on a number of things to try and help that vulnerability one is this um potentially short-term reaction to ukrainian grain which could help their support with farmers but i think the other has to be the referendum. Um, one, one reason behind this referendum is that it's treated separately by the campaign finance laws. So the Law and Justice Party can spend money on the referendum, as well as spending money on the election. But the other thing is, um, it's been seen as an attempt to try and get certain issues to the forefront of the election and get the opposition talking about them. Because, Sheridan, have you seen the
1: questions on this referendum? I was gonna say, I'm I'm sure there's certainly been some state capture of some institutions, because I'm I really doubt the Electoral Commission has been neutral in the decisions of some of these questions. I mean, the first question: do you support the selling off of state assets to foreign entities? Okay. The second part of the question is even worse, where leading to the loss of polls control over strategic sectors of the economy. I mean, surely people are gonna vote one way compared mm. to the other on that one. And the other one question was the fourth four. question. Yeah. yeah. Do you support the admission of thousands of illegal immigrants from Middle East and Africa in accordance with the forced relocation mechanism imposed by the European bureaucracy? Certainly, there is going to be one way in which bias of questions. It's, we talk about bias in opinion polls. That's bias in referendum questions. That is textbook examples, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And you've seen... Um, Donald
0: Tusk has been urging his supporters to boycott, not just spoiling the ballot in the referendum, but refusing to accept a ballot paper for the referendum it, at all. Um, and it's it's safe to say that it's heated up the atmosphere um, in this already pretty tense election, um, that referendum. But you can see how The law and justice party clearly feel that those kind of issues are fertile ground for them and putting them in a referendum on the same day as election day is a guaranteed way to ensure that those are the issues being talked about in the run-up to it
1: well so one thing is certain sam they are certainly throwing the kitchen sink at trying to win historic unprecedented third term and i think do you not agree sam and this could be a good transition that part of the reason why that they're throwing the absolute kicking sink about it, is that they want to put a final political nail into probably one of their, from their point of view, the complete enemy of their political philosophy, which is Donald Tusk, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is no love lost between Donald Tusk and Jaroslaw Kaczynski, who have been long-term political enemies in Poland, really for the best part of the 21st century, um, to be completely honest. Um, Donald Tusk obviously spent um, a few terms as Prime Minister, and Yaroslav Kowalski has spent um, just, just under two years as Prime Minister in that period, but prior um, to Donald Tusk. And we have these famous political enemies facing off again. Um, and Donald Tusk, interestingly, Chern, is not a particularly trusted politician in Polish opinion polls which almost adds an extra facet onto this election a lot of people have been saying that they think that the polarization this election is potentially the only thing that's going to save donald tusk because people could put aside their feelings towards him as a person and vote for what he represents as a political figure in this contest Um, so it's it's really a fascinating contest because I think both of them represent the polar opposites of what is available um, in this election. Donald Tusk, he's a former president of the European Council. He is an archetypal European Union figure. He is um, an establishment political figure. He's a former prime minister facing the Law and Justice Party who represent the complete antithesis to that. So it's a very polarized election and having Donald Tusk's grand return to the front line of Polish politics via this election, I think, is is making it all the more fascinating.
1: I think as well, why is that? Is that Donald Tusk's base of support is literally also the polar opposite to Jaroslav Kaczynski's base of support. Civic Platform's base of support is largely from Poland A, so the German partition of Poland, it's usually middle and upper class compared to older, more religious voters who tend and working class voters who tend to vote for PIS, more highly educated, more urban and overly poor european So that's why there's a fundamental split in Polish politics because their bases are just so fundamentally different from each other. They differ not only in economic policy but on social policy as well. Mm, mm. That cannot be ignored. and
0: and Yaroslav Kaczynski has been using that experience against Donald Tusk because he is criticising him for being able to speak German. Um, He's criticising him for when he was prime minister, he signed a gas import deal with Russia. So he's trying to portray Donald Tusk as pro-German and pro-Russian. And there's also still a belief um, in Kaczynski's camp, subscribing to a conspiracy theory that actually Donald Tusk worked with Poland to worked with russia sorry to orchestrate the plane crash that killed his twin brother lech Kaczynski, who was a former um candidate for president in poland so there is like not just a deep-seated political hatred there
1: but personal as well not only candidate he was the president of poland actually his twin brother and donald Tusk is the longest serving prime minister in polish history in terms of one occupant being in office, I think he's in office for seven years before he became Mm. president of the European Council. So definitely not a lot lost there. Sam, I want to close out before we go on to predictions, is that this election has largely revolved around the personal animosity between two men. But the one thing that I've always been interested by, and I would love your views about it, is that Poland does it has a de-haunt electoral system multi-member de the Haunt electoral system. Now, our three groups are fighting out for third place, all representing different parts of the ideological spectrum. We have the left, the third way, which is the lies between the Polish coalition, Poland 2050, and largely is the big party that is the Polish People's Party, and the far-right confederation. The one thing I noted is that Donald Tusk is a centre-centre-right politician. Um, Kaczynski, you could argue, is a right-wing politician. Where is the left in this discussion? It is unique that even compared to Slovakia last week there is a left involved but in Poland there really hasn't been isn't it? Mm, mm. And really since sort of 2005 you've seen
0: the decline of the, the left, the specific left par- parties um, in Poland because they did spend quite a extended period of time between 1995 and 2005 being at the height of um, Polish politics and being right at the seat of government, um, but a lot of people have credited that period with why we don't really see um, left-wing involvement in a major way now, because that period was plagued with corruption scandals, their entry into the Iraq war, and um, they spent a lot of time lowering cooperation tax and working very closely with the church in Poland, um, which led to a decline in support from their traditional base and also just shopping around for different political parties. And since then, they've found it very difficult to recover because the Civic Platform, as an organisation, managed to capture a lot of that traditional vote and drag them into the centre with with their party and where their ideology sits. So that to that, to me, has been one of the main reasons the left has fallen away. But also, I think there's a broader point here to be made that there's a bit of a blend of ideologies going on at the top of um, Polish politics, because you've got the Law and Justice Party, who are the quote-unquote furthest mainstream right option. But at the same time, on economics, as you set out at the beginning, they're moderately centre-left in terms of what they approach to um, welfare spending. So when you've got that going on, it does make it very difficult for um, the the conventional political spectrum to take place because they're capturing a much broader um, potential electorate and different groups um, and different cleavages than would conventionally happen when you have your centre-right both social and economic party and then your centre-left social and economic party and that doesn't really exist at the moment um, in Poland
1: because of all those reasons we've discussed. I think two reasons I will attribute the left is- the issues that the left has been facing. Firstly, particularly in the last two elections, they haven't didn't have a problem in twenty nineteen. I don't think they have a problem now, but electoral alliances in Poland the threshold is seven point five percent, not five percent. So that's why in twenty fifteen, um, they had a problem there because they fell below the threshold and lost and and lost all this. In fact, eight percent in that election. For, as an electoral coalition they've got 7.5 percent so lost all their seats basically the second thing i think as well is that they are bit quite divided and i think as well is that the traditional working class base is also quite anti-eu It's also quite culturally conservative and that goes against the socially liberal portion of the of of their base as well whereas And or of the the party itself because they want to attract younger voters. So I I think that's a mismatch, really. And the other thing I was reading about is I think Polish young people in Poland are not as left-wing as one might have assumed compared to other countries as well. So that's why Civic Platform, with Mm. its pro-EU platform, and its much more liberal economic agenda, and its social liberal agenda has been able to capture their voter base as well.
0: Yeah, and the one final thing I read about, which I thought was was interesting and could almost apply to the very early days of the civic platforms rivalry with the Law and Justice Party. But a lot of it was saying that in the early days of the rise of um, the Law and Justice Party 2015, when they became a majority government, was that the left would often spend a lot of their time challenging them and calling them out on constitutional issues and rule of law issues, which, to be honest, are quite abstract issues for the wider public to... um, engage with in the same way that they would engage with the kind of economic and immigration issues being espoused by the other side. So when you've got that conflict going on, you can see why some voters were um, turned off by the approach that the left were taking to challenging the Law and Justice Party. Despite how legitimate the things they're saying are, that, that sort of um irrelevant um in in this argument because if your fundamentals are not great or certainly not where you would like them to be your economic fundamentals welfare housing those kind of things then you don't really care for conversations about the constitution um, unless it becomes profoundly serious so you can sort of see why that argument didn't work in the early days of
1: law and justice's government as as Bill Clinton once famously said, "Is the economy stupid, isn't it?" Mm-hmm. So who cares? So long, as your material wealth is getting better. Um, they haven't quite hit um one of my favorite favorite GV my sonny uh the post material hypothesis one of my favorite theories I learned in GV one one they haven't hit that quite yet, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And on that note, Sam, predictions. What do you think will happen? Well, this
0: this is one of the hardest um predictions I've done in quite some time on this podcast. But
1: compared I... to last week?
0: Well, well, that's true. That's true. That was com- complicated for a different reason because the coalition <laughs> negotiations involved were just borderline farcical. This time, um I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that I think the numbers will m- much more favor an arrangement formed between um, the civic platform, the left and the um, Poland 2050, the Polish coalition, um, I think their numbers will be in a much better position to form a kind of stable arrangement than the law and justice's um, friends might be, in, in, well, potential friends, I should say, because we haven't really talked about them yet, but the confederation are pro- are seem much more likely to prop up a law and justice government, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that relationship is going to be particularly civil. So I think the the numbers are going to favour a civic platform-led government that's not necessarily straightforward as it sounds. The only thing that might change that is if the Law and Justice Party managed to somehow get very close to 231. Um, That's the only thing that I think could, could change this because I think it's much more difficult for the Law and Justice Party to form a stable arrangement
1: than it is for the other side well I should say they got a they became they got two three five which are in a higher they got a majority governed PIS to govern by themselves in 2015 on 35 percent of the vote they are polling about 35 percent of the vote still possible the mm. horn favors big parties a lot you of it depends well. really
0: on whether the um Polish coalition and um the left are going to thro- cross the threshold um with enough space to gain quite a few seats as a beneficiary of
1: that because if they don't it's game over i agree um i think th- those would be two interesting questions to ask um we've often agreed on this podcast i do think on the other hand that pis will get a third term but it will be a shaky government i would not be surprised if they need confederations' help to form a government um, The one thing I think will potentially be against them is what turnout would be. As I said, if your turnout base largely relies on rural, older people um, who are much more salient, they're much more likely to vote. If turnout is lower, I think that will favor them. If turnout is high... I do think it could be a benefiting civic platform. And I think, Sam, would you not agree? In some ways, this is Poland's equivalent of Biden versus Trump, isn't it? Everybody knows who they are. Everybody has a strong opinion of who they are. And everyone is either is largely voting, I suspect, against one of the other two candidates, more than just necessarily voting pro one of the other two candidates as well. So I think we still will get a high turnout, a, engaged electorate for that reason as well. But I still think, That uh, PIS and its allies and potentially confederation can form a government itself. The one thing I think why I say that is I think Yurisov-Kalinsky has been very clever because, Sam, how many years has he been prime minister
0: over the last two years? Just short of
1: two years. Well, that was in 2006-2007, but since 2015 and PIS returned to power, he has been prime minister for exactly zero of the time he's relied on better Suedo and the current prime minister to lead the government but him being party leader and him now being deputy prime minister in charge of the security services the interior for from 2021 to 20 from 2020 2022 and 2022 to 2023 I think has been very clever at presenting a more acceptable face to the Polish society but still controlling the strings behind the scene. Donald Tusk is not going with that approach. He is Civic Platform's prime minister candidate. And therefore, when Kaczynski and Tusk have both negative approval ratings, I think the more front-forward nature of Tusk will put him in a slight disadvantage. But it will be close, Sam.
0: Well, we'll have to regroup in a few weeks' time to find out exactly what's happened. But I think we've said it a lot um, today so far, but this election has the potential to be pretty consequential um, in terms of geopolitics both in the region but also the wider european union as well so a lot of eyes will be on this election on october the 14th but for now that is it for the latest episode of ballot to talk about do join us again next week when we'll be providing an update on recent electoral events in canada as well as previewing the upcoming voice referendum in australia and as always, we'll be ke- continuing to keep you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at, at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or tell your friends about us. You can also email any feedback or comments to ballot to talk about at gmail.com. My name is Sam. And until next time, we'll speak to you soon.